0: Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And today's conversation is one that makes me kind of giggle because we are so often told our career is puppies and kittens, and it rarely is. But today, with my guest, Dr. Ellen Lindell. I'm going to be talking about puppies, the developmental stages of puppies to be specific. The July 2020 article that she shared um, really kind of sparked a conversation I wanted to have today. So before I introduce Dr. Lindell to you, um, let me tell you a little bit about her background. Dr. Lindell is the president of the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists. Her behavior specialty practice is based in New York and Connecticut. Dr. Lindell is a member of the Fear-Free Advisory Panel, a certified fear-free professional and an approved fear-free speaker. She's also a behavior consultant for Veterinary Information Network. She's lectured extensively. She's written chapters for several publications, including the BSAVA Manual for Canine and Feline Behavior. Blackwell's 5-Minute Veterinary Consult and newly updated Blackwell's 5-Minute Consult canine and feline behavior, and decoding your dog, which if you have not seen, read, or recommend to every single client that comes into your office, please start doing that. Dr. Lindell,
1: welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm going to say a little off topic here. I was just part of a cat behavior summit all weekend with Base Paws DNA Company. And Steve Dale was lecturing on litter boxes. And this was one of the books he put up, as well as your decoding cats. And the whole audience was like, I love that book. I love that book. I love that book. Nice. You have really, really helped folks all over the industry. So I'm going to stop gushing at you. Tell us a little bit just about how you became part of the behavior world. Like when did that become your focus and your specialty?
1: Well, I always found psychology and learning fascinating and just thinking about all the different kind of layers of learning and thinking and manipulating or managing behavior. So in the veterinary field, the Behavior College really was founded in 1993. And so once that started, I said, oh, this is perfectly exactly what I've always wanted. So I'd been in regular practice for about 10 years and I just jumped right in.
0: That's amazing. So I guess let me take a step back because I always ask, were you always a veterinarian since you were born or did you come (laughs) into this profession later on?
1: No, I was always a veterinarian. I think the label was put on me. uh, You know, when I was still in kindergarten, I was just one of those, (laughs) one of those things that was meant to be.
0: Okay, so in what point in vet school did you know behavior was gonna be your thing or was it kind of going into vet school? You kind of married those passions.
1: Well, so going into vet school, we were lucky because I went to University of Pennsylvania and we actually had a behavior department already. We had rounds and a service, the behavior service. So we rotated through that service. And and so I was able to get that early exposure, but it still wasn't a thing. It wasn't something where people were pushing Putting it into practice and really, you know, sort of officially a recognized aspect of taking care of our pets. And so uh, I don't know if you know, Dr. Vicki Voif, but she actually was the instructor back then. And I remember when I started my practice as exclusively behavior after working in general and doing my residency. And then I actually was seeing clients and became only behavior because there was so much to do. And she said, I knew this would be a thing one day. She said, I just, this is so exciting. Cause when she started out, she was, you know, really one of the very few wasn't recognized by the veterinary community very much at all.
0: Yeah. Wow. And those pioneers, boy, I'm so glad that they were willing to stand up and be those pioneers. So, all right, we're referring back to your July, 2020 article developmental stages of puppies. And you wrote articles both on kitten and puppy development. And they both mentioned the human animal bond in the very first paragraphs. Tell me about the importance of development and the long term bond with owners.
1: Well, I think that we sometimes underestimate how much we can help our puppies and kittens become the adult pets that we really want. And people will become much more fond of their puppies and dogs and kittens and cats if they develop into the companions that the people are seeking. So I think that we have these timelines. And I know I talked a little bit about the different stages that are official stages, but they're loosely official stages. I mean, there's some physiologic things that happen, but some of the things that affect how our puppies develop are influenced by the people that surround them. So I think just helping people know that, hey, if you have a expectation or there's something you dreamt of having your puppy do when it grows up to be able to start shaping that early on.
0: So I guess a follow-up question to that, which almost, I think from what you just said, sort of becomes apparent is, you know, what are the challenges we see to the bond during puppy development that we really need to help our clients address
1: early on? So I think that the fact that there are some behaviors that are just species typical and they're very normal behaviors, but they're behaviors that uh, people are not appreciative of. And so, there's a lot of thinking by a lot of pet owners that, oh, well, it's just a stage and it will just go away. And they underestimate that it is potentially part of that pet's personality and that if people don't want that behavior to happen, that they can help make new behaviors. So having a good understanding of what's normal and not being so concerned if something it doesn't suit you to be able to say, oh, that's just normal. I can make an adjustment to that, so to speak.
0: I think that's exactly right. We label and box behaviors and things, right? So we're like, this is normal. This is puppy. This is, and we label that behavior without having the experience or knowledge. And I think that makes a lot of sense because we know that behavior is one of the number one reasons animals get surrendered. And I know we could be working on these earlier. So I guess I want to back up too and just start with the overview of the four stages for puppies for us that you outlined in the article for anybody who hasn't had a chance to read
1: it yet. Sure. Well, of course puppies are born that they're the, they're called the neonates and neonatal puppies are have their eyes closed and their ears aren't functioning and so they're just little sponges and, and able to feel their world a little bit and then through that neonatal stage we get into the next stage which is called the transition stage which is where there's more sensory input available so the eyes and the ears are going to start to function. And that transition we estimate takes about a week. So, we're talking about that puppy that's between two and three weeks old. They're going to start developing and you know, processing the things that they're starting to now see and hear, and their motor functions are going to start to develop a little bit. And we actually start to see a little bit of interactions between the puppies that they start to be aware of each other. And then we get to the big stage, which is called the socialization stage, which is a really important stage for bonding, for learning about life that these puppies are going to dive into soon. And that stage takes puppies from about that three week, where now we've got functioning eyes and ears, and, and we're able to move about a bit more, all the way up to somewhere around 12 to 14 weeks of age. And we call it the sensitive period for socialization, because that's a period where the puppies are going to be the most sensitive to input that's coming from the outside. So this is the period where we want to introduce puppies to things that they might ever encounter in the future because they're going to be the most able to accept it. And then lastly, we have a little more vague stage, the juvenile stage, so puppy adolescence, so to speak, which based on research projects, we label that stage as lasting until puppies become sexually mature, which is around six months old. So that teenage stage can be a little different, maybe goes a little faster in small breeds, a little slower in large breeds. And just at the end of that phase, the puppies are still not completely socially mature. So social maturity takes months and months after that. And so we don't really call that an official stage, but we just recognize that juveniles are still learning. And they, this is a time where puppies are often experiencing or exhibiting behaviors that owners are considering to be problematic. And that sort of goes back to that point we were discussing before where suddenly people say, wow, there are not puppies anymore. They don't have puppy teeth anymore, but yet they're still chewing my house. Or why is that puppy still jumping up on me? I thought he would outgrow it.
0: (laughs) That's exactly right. And that is, that's about the time that we see them back in the clinic, right? They're approaching one year old or they're coming in for that neuter and folks are overwhelmed. Okay. So I guess one thing I wanted to pick apart here a little bit is you notice in your article that socialization cannot start soon enough, but then we have that kind of socialization period that you mentioned. And so when you say socialization can't start soon enough, I mean, is that truly from day one and what are some of the neurostimulation and socialization techniques that we can help our breeders or pregnant rescuers understand when their dog whelps?
1: Yeah. So I'm not sure that we would want to call it socialization when they're less than three weeks old and they're really not really being that social yet. But however, to your point of you know, neurostimulation, what kind of physical contact, we know their puppies at day one are aware, their nervous system's aware of the world. So that touch may matter. And it seems that even just handling and gentling, carrying, snuggling with baby puppies may help them become more used to that when they grow up. Well, one study showed that you got calmer dogs when they were older, if they were just handled even as early as the third day of life. So for the very early days to just know that the breeders can be gently touching the puppies and as they progress through the pre-adoption stages that people that are you know rescuing or breeding dogs can start to work with what puppies are able to process at each stage.
0: That's amazing. So I think there's this part of like, oh mom's doing the thing, leave them alone. But we can be helping in that. And I guess to follow up there, is there mistakes that we can be making um or what are the common socialization mistakes that are made in that really kind of early timeframe?
1: the very early time frame before they go to their new homes and they're still in their environment, I think just what you said, thinking that the dam's going to take care of everything is a big in point to make. And as far as mistakes, the biggest mistake you can really make socializing or exposing puppies to the world is just presenting the puppy with extremes. So it doesn't help to say, oh, let's have the really loud music because the puppy's going to need to get used to that. Or let's get, you know, the school bus emptied out in our backyard and let all the kids come rushing over. Everything has to be done at a level that's comfortable for the individual puppy. And along that same theme, I think it's also a mistake to always handle the litter as a litter. So within that litter, there's going to be unique needs specific to each puppy. And we don't want the puppies to just be relying on each other, nor do we want to assume that every puppy is ready for every level of input.
0: That's a really good point. Like we have to treat them as individuals as much as we would kids, right? I mean, I really love that. Now, you also mentioned gauging stimuli responsiveness in puppies. And I was hoping you could maybe explain a little more about this and how we can better assess this through their developmental stages.
1: Yeah, so and I was really thinking when I wrote that about the older puppies, meaning the closer to that six and seven week old puppies, where now we're getting really started to get them out into the world. And you will see that some puppies are going to be the outliers in a group, and they're the ones that are always staying back, or that they're the ones that when you go somewhere, they retreat and then they don't recover. And that would be a way to say, oh, we're overwhelming this puppy. And at the other extreme would be the puppy that's overly exuberant and everything's too exciting and trying to say, hey, how can we help that puppy relax and take things a little bit more in stride? So getting everybody to the moderate level at that early age is probably going to be what you're looking for. So anything that doesn't look like everybody else looks might be a cause for attention.
0: Looking to fill a position in your practice? With the Clinician's Brief Career Center, you can access a community of more than 125,000 veterinary professionals to find the perfect person for your team. Learn more at cliniciansbrief.com backslash career-center. Okay. I love your plan for behavior monitoring and checkup. I think this is an area where we don't necessarily mentally organize ourselves. This is a great idea. So tell us a little bit more about what we're looking for in the assessments, in the behavior monitoring and checkups.
1: That is something that I feel like needs to be in a lot more. And the medical record systems, where where's the where's the box for behavior checkup? So from the start, I think the two most important things that come to my mind are, number one, to be able to, if it's safe, allow puppies especially, and even the older puppies, I mean, the tiny puppies, I think of it even more, to be able to Be free in your exam room space if you can arrange it to be that way so that they can't obviously get injured. But that way, you learn so much about the puppy. What's their willingness to explore, which would be what you would expect of a normal puppy. A normal puppy doesn't get overly excited and overwhelmed by the room. They want to sniff. They want to say hello to the people. And though that would be a sign of normal, whereas if you see a little puppy and they're hiding, you might say, Oh, why isn't that puppy interacting with us? How can we make this visit better? Maybe we need a special visit just for helping this puppy get happy here because this is going to be a lifetime of things of uh, coming to the hospital and hopefully enjoying. And it, it isn't only just about the food for some puppies. Sometimes it's helpful for them to get used to the whole world, the whole concept of being able to reach out rather than retreat. So as a baby puppy, for sure that's critical. As they get older, it's still helpful while you're taking your history to get that dog walking around. And if you say there's a dog exploring the room and he's only he's five months old now, so he's getting big and and you say, Hey, come here puppy, let's have ready time for your checkup, and the puppy know, backs up or growls, you'll say, oh, we may need a little bit of help here. So you might miss that if you just rush them in and put them on the table. And the other second part of the huge piece of this is just making sure to always ask what behaviors are concerning the client, because we talked a little bit about what's normal. And so many behaviors are normal, and they are still going to be problematic. So giving your clients a toolbox from the start so that you can help them see, oh, I think this is normal. Uh, You can always refer. It's never too early to refer. It doesn't have to be a crisis to refer to a a veterinary behaviorist. And also, if it seems to you that it is just a normal behavior that clients are just concerned about, you can give them handouts or it's really a great idea to have a good training team that you can refer to, nice, gentle kind of people that keep up to date with humane training standards and that you get the puppies into a great class, give people good advice as far as socializing. So ask about concerns and then offer the advice that they might not know they need. That is so well said. I have so much to say. Number one, yes. Can we please
0: get a behavioral check mark? And I know a lot more veterinarians are doing this. Technicians are doing this and asking about it, but you're right. I don't think it necessarily ends up as part of the medical record through this whole monitoring and checkup process, especially when we have puppies, you know, even just impressionable dogs, first time visits, what can we be doing to avoid creating long lasting behaviors or habits or negatively contributing to this whole process?
1: You're referring to the process of specifically the veterinary related experience?
0: Yeah, exactly. So when they're in the clinic, how can we make sure we're not creating life? Because it takes a second, right? It is really a picture to create a behavior that will then have to be an impression, I should say, that has to be then kind of reversed. And so, how can we avoid that in the clinic?
1: That was a good question. So, well, first of all, think about that many puppies don't want to be pursued. Like, no animal really wants to be pursued, right? So, I was discussing having that puppy be able to be wandering around and helping that puppy want to volunteer to come to you. So, there's always a happy balance between putting too much pressure on a dog that makes it want to run away versus too much begging where the puppy's like oh my gosh why are you standing there calling me so many times and so recognizing that we want to try to get that puppy to offer himself or herself to the veterinary team so that hey i want to come over here i'm cooperating with my care from day one so that we're we can maybe use a food lure but not be pushing at a puppy and then recognizing that if you have a special puppy We talk in Fear Free about wants versus needs. In a young puppy, there may be some things that you could forego in the interest of knowing that you have a puppy who's not being comfortable at all. So of course, with client consent, you might say, you know what, we really need to take the temperature, but how about we just listen to the heart and how about we play for a little while? And then how about we get that puppy on board with some snacks and then we might be able to sneak that thermometer in. So everything doesn't have to happen all at once, especially since we're talking about learning about the puppy's personality and giving the puppy an opportunity to check out that room. It's a perfect way to integrate that. So you can say, well, we're going to do a little bit and then maybe we'll have a toy or some snacks and then we're going to do a little bit more. And as we all probably know, most puppies are not that sensitive apparently to having tiny little needles in their body, but they're extremely sensitive to being restrained and held down. So everything that you can do to minimize that is going to make that first visit better for that puppy.
0: And I love the idea of getting out of our own box, right? Like we're so like TPR, I have to do TPR. Like I've got my system and we're even taught, right? To create a pattern in our physical exam so we don't miss anything. So I think we have a, um inherent nature of going straight to following through with those procedures and those orders. And it shouldn't seem so enlightening to just switch it up. But like when you said that, I was like, wow, what a great idea. So getting out of our own heads with it, I think, is really important. And I'm so glad that you said that. Let me ask you this, how much of a lack of socialization in these really important stages can be developed later? You know, we get these adult dogs from the shelter, things like that. How much of this can we repair down the road?
1: Well, it's not always so much as repairing. It's a great question because I think people do think of it as there's a line that, okay, we passed that line, we might as well just give up. So there's pieces of it that even with the best socialization are built into the puppy. So, you know, their puppy has the personality and some might be more easily frustrated than others, or some might be a little bit more tentative than others. And so those things already are part of that socialization plan from day one. So if we start with a delay, there's a lot of puppies that are so very genetically predisposed to be normal that without any socialization, they are still going to be normal. And so it's really taking each puppy as an individual and trying to decide what does that puppy seem to find overwhelming in life and how can we little by little introduce these things. So socialization, the term sort of presupposes that the puppy is completely neutral and ready to take in. And once we get a little bit more worry or lack of familiarity or caution, once we get into that, we sometimes need to go into the realm of behavior therapy, which is just really systematically desensitizing to something that might otherwise have been taken more easily at a different stage. So I think it's just getting that puppy into the world that you want that puppy to live in, whether it's you travel and you want the puppy used to motels or whether it's you want to take them to the barn and has to learn about horses. It may be not exactly the right term to call it socialization anymore, but that doesn't mean that we can't help that puppy acclimate.
0: I love how you mentioned like, we draw those lines. And I said it even in the beginning that we label and do that. And then I asked you about it because it's true. So you work with the dog in front of you. And I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned about behavior is work with the animal in front of you. Don't use your past labels, experiences, just meet them where they're at. And it sounds like that's kind of exactly what you're reinforcing. Okay, this takes it to my keep it brief segment. And there is really no need to keep it brief. We almost never do. But my summary question that I wanted to ask you was bottle-raised puppies. Do I even need to say more? What can we do for these guys to best create normal socialization? Because we know we just can't replace mom.
1: Yeah, and so it's mom, but it's also mom and their buddies. So the puppies learn a whole lot from their companions. So sometimes uh, just having puppies of the same age available. So there's more than one puppy that's been orphaned. If they're healthy, there's no reason that they can't experience each other as soon as it's safe to do so. So having puppies be able to play with other puppies and having puppies be able to play with behaviorally appropriate adult dogs. So an adult dog that can draw a line and suggest to the puppy that this is a little too much, you're nipping a little too hard without making the puppy frightened, then those are really great exposures for the puppies. And pretty much for puppies that are not being handled by mom, the one risk seems to be going forward that they might not really sense the pressure of their teeth because nobody's told them, ow, it hurts. And rather than exaggerate and pretend that we're puppies, which I'm not always sure is helpful for every dog sometimes it just makes for an excitement rather than a calming but gentle handling so i kind of think back to your question about you know the veterinary hospital and i think the things that we Struggle with as pet owners is that, you know, people want to pet their puppies and they want to be able to lift them and they want to be able to brush them and wipe them down. And those are the things that would be missing if you didn't have a mom. And those are the things that I would recommend that we try to make sure we do a lot of tactile stimulation of our puppies um, and expose them to that early. Wow, that's
0: amazing. You have spent so much time perfecting this and studying this and writing and educating. And we can't thank you enough because I think it's something there's just not enough baseline education about. And it's an area that's growing so much. There's always more to know. And we will look forward to hearing it from you in more articles and hopefully more podcasts. So if you guys have not read it yet, check out the developmental stages of puppies in the July 2020 edition of Clinician's Brief. Dr. Lindell, thank you so much for being here and all of this great information. We look forward to making much better behavioral consults with this info.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It was my pleasure.
0: Thanks again to today's guests for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief on Twitter, at Clinicians Brief, and on Instagram, at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast, is a brief media production. Produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.